1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 12. Let's read it together. Peter said, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed, verse 12, to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Father, again, we pray that today from these three short verses, this small paragraph, that our hearts would be edified, that our hands would be built up for the work, and that you would prepare us, Lord, more for the days to come through the truth found in these verses. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as a passageway into this text, I want to remind you of the life of Moses. When Moses was born, the people of Israel were suffering under brutal slavery in Egypt. It hadn't always been that way for them in Egypt. For four centuries, they'd been living under relative peace, and it had the favor of the Egyptian empire. But eventually, pharaohs arose who did not know the Hebrew forefather, Joseph, and so they began to persecute the Hebrew people, the people of God. And as pressure was placed upon the Hebrew people, the Hebrews continued to grow. They continued to prosper. So the governing authorities, the pharaoh, gave an edict saying that all of the male Hebrew babies that were born needed to be killed. Now at that point, Moses' mother was pregnant with Moses, so that endangered Moses' life. But his parents acted bravely, and they chose instead to have this baby boy and hid him for a number of months. But they realized that eventually he would be discovered. A little toddler boy running around amongst the Hebrew people would eventually be known. And so seeking the Lord, and I think taking a step of faith in him, they prepared a basket, pit, put arc, or, or a pitch on this basket so that it could float, and placed Moses upstream in the Nile River from where the princess of Egypt would daily bathe. And because God was with this young boy, she heard the cry of this little infant, saw that he was beautiful, and quickly adopted him into her family. So in that instant, Moses was transferred from an oppressed group of people to living a life of absolute privilege in the palaces of Pharaoh. Now when Moses became an adult, a grown man, he grew conscious of his Hebrew heritage. And he began to assume that God would deliver the Hebrew people from their oppression through his life. He was, after all, inside the courts of Pharaoh. And so he assumed that God would use him to deliver his people. Now Moses was right. God would use Moses to deliver his people, but not 
because of his position of power or privilege or prestige. Instead, God drove Moses into the wilderness for an additional 40 years. He would take care of a man who became his father-in-law's sheep. And one day on the backside of the wilderness, alone, by himself, at 80 years of age, thinking that his destiny as the deliverer of the Hebrew people was over with, Moses saw a bush that burned, yet was not consumed. He approached this strange thing, and a voice began to speak to him. And it was the voice of God. God said, Moses, take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy ground. And that day, Moses began an intimate, deep, personal relationship with the living God. It was said of Moses that he spoke with God face to face, like a man speaks with his friend. God eventually sent Moses back into Egypt to deliver the Israelite people from their captivity. And when Moses entered back into the courts of Pharaoh, Pharaoh, a man who people worshipped as God, Pharaoh, a man who was wealthier than anyone else on the face of the earth, Pharaoh, a man of great privilege and esteem. When Moses walked into the courts of Pharaoh, Moses was the wealthiest, most privileged man in that room. Not because he was considered to be God like Pharaoh was, but because he actually had the living God. He had become a friend of God. The reason that I start this teaching with that story is because I think that Moses' story is a picture of what the people that Peter was writing to were enduring, and I think even what we are enduring in our modern age and will more increasingly endure as Christians in the age to come. Though we might lose our position in society, though we might not have the same voice that we used to have in the collective culture around us, we have God. And it might be from the fringes that God will use us to seek and to save that which is lost, to communicate the gospel to the world around us and to pull out of Egypt so to speak, his chosen, his elect, his people. In other words, it is better to have the burning bush than the palaces of Egypt. And I think Peter's audience needed to know this, and we need to know this as well. And that is why Peter writes this little paragraph that we've read this morning. He wants to bolster his audience with the understanding of how valuable their salvation is and what it says about them and encourage them to respond to who they are gloriously in the sight of God. Now the paragraph itself that we read, it's actually pretty straightforward and there's some fascinating things that are found all throughout it. If you look down in your Bibles again with me, you'll notice that in verse 10, he talks to us about the Old Testament prophets. And what Moses said is that the Old Testament prophets, they wanted to learn about their own prophecies. Can you imagine? You know, they had these things that they uttered, these things that they said about Jesus, about the Messiah that would come. And they knew that they'd prophesied that he would come, that he would suffer, 
that he would save and establish a kingdom and that he would have forever glory. And they kind of wondered, when will this happen? How will this happen? Will it be the same figure that does all of these things, the suffering and the glory? And so they inquired, Peter says, of their own prophecies. He also says in verse 12 that after they inquired, God revealed something to them. What God revealed to them was that they were not serving themselves, but they were serving us. Little did prophets like Isaiah know the moment that he spoke to the people of Israel thousands of years ago that what he was really doing was speaking to a group of Christians in Monterey, California, thousands of years later, but that's what they learned as they inquired of their own prophecies. They might be for our current generation to a degree, they discovered, but there's a future generation for whom these truths will come into clearer focus. And Peter also says something amazing. He says at the end of verse 12, concerning our salvation, that the angels themselves long to look into the glorious gospel of Jesus. The angelic realm peers into the gospel message with a longing to look into it, to study it, to discover it. Just like in the Old Testament, they had the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle or the temple. The Ark was a small box with the Ten Commandments inside of it. It had a lid on top of the ark called the mercy seat where God's presence would be found in that era. And that lid was made of gold and it had two angels, cherubim, that were engraved on top of it looking down to the mercy seat, down to the contents in the ark. In the same way, the angels today are looking down into human history and into the gospel itself, wanting to understand this incredible thing that God has done. So why is Peter saying this? Why is Peter talking to this persecuted group of Christians living in what is modern-day Turkey and telling them, hey, concerning your salvation, the prophets prophesied about it. They then inquired about what they were saying they discovered that it was for you. And by the way, angels are desiring to look into it even today. Why would Peter say such a thing to a group of hurting Christians who were marginalized for their faith? Well, I think he was saying these things to them because he wanted to lift the spirits of a marginalized people. What he wants them to understand is that even though they're outcast in the eyes of many, they are included in the eyes of God and that God has engineered human history to bring them the glorious message of the gospel. So even when they feel unloved and misplaced by society, they are loved and they have a place with the living God. That's really what this little passage or this little paragraph is about. But I want to think about it in three special ways today. I'm calling it exile salvation, what Peter has called this salvation, exile salvation. And the first thing I want you to see about it is that exile salvation, what, is it, what does it mean? Well, it, it means that you and me today, we are the target of God's affections. We are the target of God's affections. We are the target of his love. 
You see, it's, it's not that God didn't love the previous generations. It's not that God wasn't working in their midst. He most certainly was. In fact, right now, on our Tuesday night through the Bible teaching, I'm in the second half of the book of Exodus, where we're getting into the details of the tabernacle. It's riveting stuff for some people. And as you go through it, you get to read about the tabernacle and the priest going in to spend time with God, offering sacrifices, praying each day, the glory of God coming in tangibly among them. And I know that it is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. I know that I have the better thing in Christ. But man, sometimes I just think about what would it, it would have been like to, as a priest, go into the holy place or the holy of holies and have contact with God's glory directly and tangibly. I mean, God was working in their era and in their midst. But what Peter is saying is that he's working in a more powerful and poignant way in our lives today. Look at the verses again and follow with me all the people that Peter says are involved in bringing us salvation. First, he says, that the Spirit of Christ started this whole thing. He whispered these prophecies into the ears of his prophets, telling them to talk about this future age where the Messiah would come. So it began with the Spirit of Christ. Then there's the prophets, Peter mentioned. They opened their mouths and they prophesied and then wrote their prophecies down so that future generations could read them. They prophesied of the suffering Christ, so there's him. Jesus came. He suffered for us on the cross. But they also prophesied of the glorious Christ. And so there's the risen Jesus as well in this passage. Then he said that a generation arose after Jesus rose from the dead who preached the good news to the church. That, of course, started with the apostles, but then extended to evangelists including evangelists who, we assume, went to the places that these Christians that first received First Peter were living. And so they heard the gospel message come from someone's mouth. Peter also said, though, that when they preached, someone else was involved. That someone else, he said in verse 12, is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was empowering their words, strengthening them to communicate this gospel message. But the Holy Spirit, Peter said in verse 12, is the Holy Spirit from heaven, which brings us back to God the Father, the originator of this entire thing. And in all of it, the angels are watching what is happening as all of this transpires. All right, so let's recap. Who's involved in bringing us salvation in the church era? You have the Spirit of Christ. You have the prophets. You have the suffering Jesus. You have the risen Jesus. You have the apostles. You have other evangelists. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Father in heaven, and you even have the angels watching the whole thing in amazement. That's how Peter's able to say in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. All this should make modern believers, especially modern believers who are feeling a little bit on the fringe of their culture and society, that they are the target of God's affections. 
God has engineered seemingly everything to generate the delivery system of his love to us. And this is an incredible truth, and it should humble us greatly. You know, for those of you who are sports fans, I'm sure you've had the moment where you're watching some random event, some random game or match, and as you're watching it, they begin showing on the screen that there's an athlete playing in this game today who, if he gets one more catch or makes one more shot or hits one more home run, he's about to break some significant record or climb up the historical leaderboards. And the announcers know it, the player knows it, the organization knows it, the fans know it, everybody's kind of in tune. And then the moment happens. They make the shot, they get the hit, they score the touchdown or whatever it might be. And in our modern time, the game is then usually paused. They put it up on the big screen. There might be some fireworks and a moment of celebration. If it's a really big record, the athlete's family comes out from the stands and they have a moment of announcing it on the sound system. And everybody's applauding and making a big deal. It's all centered around and about this star athlete who has just done this monumental kind of thing. Well, this is nothing like what God has done for us. You see, we achieved nothing. We broke no records. We had no accolades. We were dead in trespasses, dead in sin. Our righteousness was as filthy rags to him. Yet God came to us, came down the mountain to us, climbed Mount Calvary for us, died, and then rose from the grave for us. No, our situation is more like being at that same event where there's some random dude in the upper deck eating hot dogs and enjoying nachos. And everything turns its attention towards him. The organization, the, the signage, the crowd, the players celebrating this guy who did absolutely nothing, but somehow it's all about him. That's you and me, brothers and sisters. Peter is telling us God has engineered the course of human history to deliver salvation to you and to me, his people. What is this designed to do to us? This is designed to help us when we're hopping online and seeing people share views that are basically labeling us as Christians as the problem with society. It's helpful to us to remember this, that, okay, I might not be accepted here. I might not always be accepted here, but I am accepted by the living God. I am the target of his affections. Now that leads us to a second thing that I want you to see about this text. I think it leads us to then say, number two, that exile salvation, in a sense, you could say it like this, it redefines what privilege is. It redefines privilege. Now, that might be a little bit of a provocative word to use because there's much talk of privilege in our modern world. And I do think it's a good idea for human beings to recognize their blessings. You know, right now, as we, as people in the United States, 
read the news and see the headlines of developing nations, many of whom are preparing to be battling COVID for five or six years before they can get things under control. We should be thankful for the privilege that we have, that our economic resources, that our democracy, that many things have come together for us to help us speed the process of recovery in our modern time. Many of these things could be labeled as privilege and perhaps even rightfully so. But often this term is used to divide people or categorize people or classify them. Our modern world loves division and labels. And I think this can be one more way to divide. But what Peter seems to be showing us is that the greatest privilege of all is to possess the salvation that God supplies through Jesus. His words, in effect, are a redefinition of the very term. To be saved, in other words, is the truest privilege of all. Now, in the passage, there are a few ways that this privilege shakes out. First of all, there's historical privilege. We are a historically privileged people as Christians. You know, I've been telling you throughout this teaching that God has been at work amongst his people in lots of different ways. He worked during Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's day. He worked during the days of King David. He was working during the era of the prophets and the priests of the Old Testament. He was working. He was moving. He was doing incredible things. But Peter said that the prophets of old discovered that they were not serving themselves, but they were serving us. On the timeline of human history, we are the most privileged group. We're alive after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. We are living after the completion of the Bible. So we have a historically uh, or a historical privilege on the timeline of human history. But we're also privileged, according to Peter, apostolically. And what I mean by that is we are living in the time that the apostles have already come. They've written what they wrote and have explained to us the scripture. They've told us the truth of the gospel. You know, other generations had only the first five books of the Bible. Other generations got David, the Psalms, the poetic books added on to the law of Moses. Other generations had the books of history, and other generations had the prophets. But we get all of those plus Matthew through Revelation. And this is a huge advantage, a huge privilege for us today. You know, when I was a boy, I'm sure some of you could relate, but when I was a boy, I liked playing video games. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in the generation where the first video games we had, it was, it was a joystick and a button. That's what we had, you know. And, and I graduated, I think, two levels above that as time went on, you know. So I think the most I got to was like a six-button configuration. And then after that, I had to retire. My brain just could not handle it anymore. So you hand me one of these modern controllers with headgear and 19 buttons. I just don't stand a chance. I want to go back to the joystick with one button. That's kind of my jam right there. But I remember back in the day that there would be times where we'd have a game that we were trying to beat. Lots of levels, secret passageways, things like that. And every once in a while, it was so hard that what somebody would do is they would either buy a magazine or subscribe to a magazine because there was no Google at that time 
And what they would get is they would get these cheat codes. And you'd enter in these cheat codes and it just made the game so much easier. It unlocked the game for you. Well, listen, the apostles and their teaching in the form of the New Testament, they are the ultimate cheat code on God's word. Genesis through Malachi meant certain things to certain people before Jesus arrived and before the apostles taught. But now Jesus has come and the apostles have communicated and they have opened up the entire Bible to us. We have a great advantage and privilege apostolically. But not only that, we are cosmically privileged. And I mean this because he says that the angels want to look into this gospel that is ours. I've been thinking about it this week, you know, that there are moments where the Bible is sitting in front of me. I got the spirit of God inside of me. I've got an understanding of the gospel to a degree. And I can kind of just feel like, well, here we go. Let's read the Bible a little bit more. And all week I've been thinking about these angels who know God, have seen God, peering into what I have, wishing they could understand what I understand, what I know, what has been revealed to me because I'm a recipient of the gospel. You know, Jesus said that the angels in heaven, they celebrate when just one person repents of their sin. They love this whole thing. They love this whole gospel story. They, they love that a fallen and broken humanity is restored by the death and the resurrection of the God that they have known since their inception. I think it was unbelievable to them when it occurred. The second person of the Trinity is becoming one of them. He lives, then he dies, then he rises from the dead to save the people who killed him. I think it astounded them. It's marvelous to them. And they want to look into it. They don't need salvation. They don't need to be cleansed of sin. They're pure before God. So it amazes them that God made a way for us to be made clean. But I think Peter wants us to see as well that we are privileged from the eschatological angle. What I mean is, but the end of all things. You see, he said there in verse 11 that the prophets foretold Jesus' suffering, but also about Jesus' subsequent glories. Glories that would come after, come later. And listen, when you're suffering for Jesus, you got to fixate your mind on the glories that come after the suffering. He suffered, then glory came. And so we will suffer at times, but glory will truly come for those who love Christ. Man, we are a privileged people, brothers and sisters, loved and chosen by God. This exile salvation, it shows us that we are privileged by the Lord. All right, let me close with one last thing about this exile salvation. I think it demands a response in our lives. That's the third thing I want to say. Exile salvation demands a response. I've just been thinking about what it would be like if Peter was here today, kind of explaining to us, hey, this is what I meant about the prophets, inquiring, looking into, and 
this great salvation and everybody that was involved historically to get the gospel message to you. And for us, we even add on to that list, don't we? You know, it's not just apostles and New Testament early era evangelists, you know, it's your, it's your aunt or your mother or a youth pastor or, or a group of people in your life who came to you and shared with you the hope of Jesus, the love of Christ. And I think one of our first responses should be that we would rejoice, that we'd rejoice at our salvation. I mean, think about what the text is saying. It's saying that the angels are looking into what we possess, that the prophets were trying to figure out what we would possess. And here's the deal. We possess it. So we should be a people who celebrate what we have in Jesus every single day of our lives. We were singing that earlier. Bring me to the cross. It's a way to celebrate the cross of Jesus. Hey, I want to encourage you guys. You know, as we're singing to the Lord in our corporate gatherings, we are celebrating Jesus. We are praising him for what he has given to us. I've noticed that a lot of people in our church seem to not be very comfortable at this stage of their lives in raising their hands to the Lord, but you can do that. You have permission, permission granted, to raise your hands to the Lord if you desire to, to say to him, I'm impressed with you. I love you. You know, sometimes the posture of our bodies communicates what's going on in our hearts. Sometimes I'll raise my hands to the Lord like this as if to say, I need to receive something from you. Sometimes I'll raise my hands to the Lord like this as if to say, I'm surrendering to you. Sometimes I'll raise my hands to the Lord like this as if to just say, you are awesome to behold. And sometimes I'll raise my hands like this. I call this the Riley, the, the Riley. Sometimes I'll do the Riley because I'm, I'm praying for you, thinking about you. And, you know, we can do that before the Lord. We can rejoice over him. But I think another way that we can respond to this great salvation is that we can embrace the unity we have with other people who've also received this salvation, our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I've been really blessed by our church over the last 14, 15 months as a church family. It's been a trying time. And I believe that God is going to bring us into a really fruitful season in the weeks, months, and years to come. But it's been a trying time the last 14 or 15 months. You know, Romans 14 has been clear in my mind the entire time that we've navigated uh, this season that we've been in. Because in Romans 14, Paul wrote to a Romans church that they all loved the gospel, but they were very different from each other. So they had secondary convictions and areas the Bible doesn't really talk about, gray areas. And Paul, Paul just told them, he said, look, you got to hold those convictions, believe them in your heart, act out on those convictions, but you also can't judge your brother or sister in Christ. And I'm really honestly praying for Romans 14 to continue to be the attitude and the spirit that we operate in in the weeks and months to come. There's going to be debates about masks and debates about vaccinations and all of that. And I just think it's beautiful for God's people to be a people who say, here's what I'm going to do. This is the conviction God has given to me. But this is like a third or fourth place thing in my life. So I'm going to talk about it and have a tone about it like it's third or fourth place because the gospel, who Jesus has made me to be, this salvation, it is the first place thing that unites me 
to my brothers and sisters in Christ. I would love it if it would be possible for life groups to gather together where some people, you know, for them it's masks till Jesus comes back. And for others, it's I never wanted to wear this thing in the first place, but we're brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. I believe that should be the spirit that predominates the Christian heart, the Christian life. And so I'm hoping and praying that God will lead us in that way in the years to come. But I think a final application or response to this truth that Peter lays out for us is that we should set our minds and our hearts upon learning more about this great salvation. I think the text kind of nudges us in this direction. You got prophets studying it. You got angels looking into it. But we have the cheat code. You know, I've spent the last 25 years of my life, not exclusively, but I've spent the last 25 years of my life studying the gospel. And at this point, I feel I barely know anything. It's beautiful. The second you get to what you think is the end of one vein of gold, you discover you've only just begun and that there are many more veins to pursue and to study and to learn about, about what God has done for us. And so I pray that we would be a people who continue to study and learn of the goodness of God in the message of Christ. Let's do this together. Let's dig and study and learn more of this glorious gift of God. So in summary, we have a great salvation, amen? Peter wants us to know about this salvation, be firm in this salvation, and feel that we are a special people because of this salvation. Just like Moses, banished from Egypt, taking care of his father-in-law's sheep, returning back into Egypt with just a staff in his hand. He was actually the wealthiest human being alive because he had God. So we have more than anyone because we have the Lord.